So we've been talking about these different views of who can be saved. And there's universalism. Universalism means that everyone's going to heaven. There is no hell. That was our topic last week, the doctrine of hell. And it's a reason that a lot of people don't like Christianity. They reject Christianity because they can't believe. And a God who would allow evil and sin in the world, that's the problem of evil. But also a God who would send people to eternal punishment. And so a lot of people don't like Christianity, reject the truth of the gospel for that reason. And to get around that, what progressive liberal Christians have done is come up with these other views. Uh, the worst of which is universalism. Universalism was uh, last week. There's a church even here in San Antonio called the Unitarian Universalists. And so they say that God loves everybody. Everybody, So everybody is going to go to heaven. We looked at a more famous one from a few years ago, Rob Bell. And we played a few clips just of how he started that process of asking questions. And he was asking what if, what if everybody goes to heaven? What if there is no hell? What if God is all loving? And he went on to eventually admit that's exactly what he believed. So we, we talked about how to answer, answer them, and how to answer them is based on the words of Scripture. Yes, God loves all his creation, but not in the same way that he loves those that he saves. The Bible is very clear about that. It's called technically salvific love, saving love redeeming love. I mean, you can use different phrases. His electing love, his predestining love, it's all the same. It's a special love that he will forever save those that he has redeemed in Christ. So now we're moving on to the other view, which is inclusivism. Now, inclusivism isn't as broad-ranging. Inclusivism still focuses on Christ, but the key to inclusivism is that you don't have to have faith in Christ. Christ will save you without your knowledge. You just have to be a good enough person. You could be a good enough Muslim, a good enough Buddhist, and good enough in your society. And so this is where we left off last week. Anyone can be saved through Christ by the Spirit. So up until that point, that sounds wonderful. And then we just would add through faith, right? Through faith alone, the Reformation. But here's the part that's wrong without having conscious saving faith. We're not talking about infants who die. We're not talking about children here. We're talking about conscious adults who can hear the gospel and reject it. Even people who've never heard the gospel. Inclusivism goes a long way in our world today that says it's not fair. It's not fair that the guy who's never heard of Christ would, would go to hell. The problem is we don't, it's like R.C. Sproul said, what's wrong with you people? But well, we don't understand the sin of mankind. If we did, we would never say it's not fair number one. And number two, we would realize people go to hell for their sin, not just because they didn't hear of Christ. It's not their fault that they never heard something. It is their fault that they've sinned. And God accounts their sin to their account. They will be punished for that in eternity without Christ. So inclusivism is very popular today. It's becoming more popular within Christianity. You have this idea that Yes, we can go preach the gospel, but if no one hears it, that's okay, because Christ will still save them, sort of without their knowledge. And there's two really subgroups here. General revelation, inclusivism. A person can be saved if they respond to God through seeing enough of who he is in general revelation. So general revelation is the creation and the mind that God has given us, and the heart, basically the heart and mind. So Romans 1, Romans 2, God is has made himself known to us in creation and within our hearts, so we know there is a God. And people say, well, if you just work hard enough at that, God will save you. And it's not universalism. You're not getting saved by Buddha or, or Muhammad or whatever or Allah. You're getting saved by Christ. You just don't know it. And so this really helps philosophers and scientists and people who kind of just study God through these things. Then there is another branch, though, that says through these other religions you'll be saved, but it's because of Christ. So you were just a really good Hindu, and you just didn't know better. Christ will still save you if you're good at that religion. This is the modern Roman Catholic view after Vatican II. Muslims, Jews, they say all other, I forget what they call it. They might even say brethren. They call them brethren. They can be brethren as well. So I want to show you a clip here. Don't get me wrong, Billy Graham did preach a clear gospel. As time went on, he wanted to get more and more crowds, and he had to deal with that. And he began working with the Roman Catholics, being much more inclusive in that sense, but also inclusive in his views. 
this is an official statement. Sometimes people will hear this clip and say, well, you know, he was just getting older. He was a bit senile. No, this is the official write-up. He wrote this view on his website, or they published it, official view of Billy Graham and the Billy Graham organizations. So that's Billy Graham. That's, that's an indication of inclusivism, that you can be saved by Christ without knowing Christ. And so we need to be able to answer that. That is a very growing view. I remember a few years back, we went to the Shepherds Conference, and they were giving out, usually they give out about 10 to 12 books for those who sign up. And one of the ones they give out is a book that answers inclusivism. And it's all about that. Remember, the view that's biblical is exclusivism. That comes from Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's exclusive. You have to believe in Christ. Universalism is everybody, no matter what. And then inclusivism is everybody, if they're looking at the light, as they said, the light of the God that they know. Romans 1 really gives us the answer to that. But before we go there, let's look at some of these other verses. Salvation is only available through repentance, the Bible says, and faith in Christ. How many times? Go through some time. If you want to do a Bible study of, of union with Christ, us being united with Christ, underline everything or highlight everything in the New Testament that says in Christ or into Christ. You're going to find hundreds in Christ, through Christ. You could even include that as well, through Christ but really in Christ. It's, it's repentance and faith in someone. It's not just faith in general, but faith in someone. The object of that faith is Christ, and particularly his work and his life, it, it, the work that he did, and then the person that Christ is. So faith in Christ's cross work, and that no one can be saved without this. That's why the apostles died for the faith, because not because you could get there any other way, but because you had to believe in Christ. That's what angers people to this day. If you were to say, Jesus will save you no matter what you believe, no one's really going to get mad about that. Everyone would be happy. If you say, you must have faith alone in Christ alone, and it's not by works, that will anger almost every other religion in the world and some people who don't even have a religion. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. His, his people know him. Not just that there is a God, but they know him specifically. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So it's not just that Christ can save or will save a people, but his people know him. They know him. They know his name. There is no other name. There's a focus on the name. And the New Testament, they're always talking about Jesus Christ. Some more answers we could also go through Romans 1 and show that general revelation is not enough. It's not enough. Paul makes that clear. It's why the wrath of God is upon mankind. God made it clear that he existed so that the people who went to hell would be without excuse. They have no excuse. They know there's a God. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Not just a few people, but by the time you get to Romans 3, it's everyone. Everyone suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. His eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. Romans 3.11, there's no one who understands, there's no one who seeks God. No one of themselves is truly seeking God. It's important to remember, why do people get eternally punished? For their sin. What if they never heard of Jesus? Why do people get eternally punished? For their sin. That's what you have to keep reinforcing sometimes to folks who don't understand this. People get eternally punished for their sin. If they deny Jesus, that is a great sin. But this is why people who've never heard of Christ will suffer eternally for their own sin. No one's innocent. No, not one. It's not as if God is sending people to hell because they were innocent. Has that ever happened? That would, that would mean God was unjust. That would mean God was evil, sinful. And by the way, there's no one who is innocent except one, and that's Christ. And so back to R.C. Sproul, he literally got asked the question about something along these lines of, why does God send people to hell for you know, small things? He said, what's wrong with you people? You don't understand the sin of Adam and Eve, how it's been passed down, 
and how wicked we are because we sin. Let's look at Romans 10. This is the best, I think, answer. All that we've talked about here would be a good answer for this. But Romans 10, 13, very important here. Again, listen to the focus on the name. It's not enough just to know that there is a God. It's not enough just to know that someone might could be saved because God is all-powerful. The name is a huge focus in Scripture. And it says in 10, 13, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's, there's an idea of name, and Lord in the Old Testament would be Yahweh. So that's the covenant name of God's, the Israel's God. They need to know the name. And now we, we know we come to him through Jesus Christ. So we know the name of the Messiah, the Son of God. And in verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? So you're saved by calling upon the name of the Lord, trusting in him. But how can you do that if you've never heard of him? The idea is you cannot. Then how are people ever going to come to believe in him if they've not even heard of him? Well, they can't. Then how will they hear without a preacher? In other words, there needs to be preachers going out and proclaiming this truth. There needs to be church planters and missionaries. There needs to be preachers all throughout the world who proclaim this truth and Christians who even proclaim it as they evangelize. They can't hear of the name of Christ, which they have to hear to be saved, unless somebody goes and tells them. He makes that clear in the next verse. And how will they preach unless they are sent? So we need to be sending out. Just as it is written, now he goes back to Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news of good things. There is good news that goes out from the speaker who speaks for God. However, They did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And look, verse 17 is very clear. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. It doesn't matter the experiences that people have. You must hear or read or somehow take in the word of Christ. I don't know of other ways other than hearing and reading that you could do that. You have to take in the name, the gospel, and the basics. That's it. And so Paul's very clear. In fact, we would completely undo missions if we held to universalism or inclusivism. There's no need for it. Why would you go risk your life and your family's life and your child's life and all these diseases and headhunters that used to be out there on these islands? Why would people ever do that if you could be saved any other way? It doesn't make sense. This inclusivism is very new because of our modern world. And we're trying to make an excuse for God. We think Well, it's not fair that the guy who's never heard of Jesus would go to hell. So therefore, we've got to come up with something to let God off the hook. Well, God's not on the hook to begin with because people go to hell for their sin, not for never hearing of Christ. But if they hear and reject Christ, then that is a great sin. So here's sort of the logic of that passage we just read. It assumes one must call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. People can only call upon him if they believe in him. People cannot believe in him unless they have heard of him. They cannot hear of Christ unless there is someone to tell them. The conclusion is that saving faith comes by hearing. That is by hearing the gospel message. And this hearing of the gospel message comes about through the preaching of Christ. The implication seems to be that without hearing the preaching of the gospel of Christ, no one can be saved. And that is the message. I preached that once. A lady came up to me, a visitor. She said, I I disagree with you. I said, okay, that's not uncommon, I guess. I'm just preaching what's in the Bible. She said, well, I disagree. I was saved. And she, she went on this weird experience and it had no gospel in it, something about a light in her closet. And I said, well, if, if you're a Christian at some point, you must have come to hear the gospel and know the gospel. And she said, well, I, I did later on. But, and, then, and then I didn't continue the conversation. But we have this idea that God doesn't have to even operate according to what he said in the Bible. And that would make him a liar. Did he say something? Did he show us in the Bible the way, the way of salvation, the way of proclaiming that, the gospel he did? And so that's enough for us. Let's focus on that. Don't we have a life's work of just reading and understanding the Bible and proclaiming that truth to others? We don't need to come up with inventive new ways to let God off the hook when he's never on the hook in the first place. We need to study who God is so we would understand that's not even needed. Okay, there is sort of a side view to this called post-mortem evangelism. After you're dead, you get to hear the gospel one more time. That's another way that people 
say that those get a second chance. Those who've never heard the gospel will have an opportunity to trust Christ after death. Well, it seems like the Lord that we serve knew this would be an excuse. So he makes sure to put in the Bible a couple of times, real clear. And as much as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. There's no purgatorial area where you get to hear the gospel. There's no intermediate place where you kind of get to rest for a while and hear the gospel over and over. That's it. The focus is on this life, trusting in Christ now, repenting of your sins now. Luke 13, 25, the door is shut, then no one can enter. If you read that passage, there's knocking, they're trying to get into the kingdom, they can't. The door's been shut. It closes at a certain point. And if we die, it closes then. If Christ comes back before we die, it closes then. Revelation 20, 11 through 15, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So it's, it's based on the deeds done in this life that person will be punished in eternity. And also the deeds of Christ in the place of the believer. And you'll prove that, of course, through your good works as a Christian. But it comes back to what's the evidence? What does the evidence look like? So this whole idea of the problem of hell really isn't a problem. Like the problem of evil isn't a problem if we understand the Bible as we grow and understand theology. The punishment of hell, is people have a problem with that. They say it cannot be eternal because sin is only finite. God's not going to punish a person forever just because he stole $5. Bubble gum used to be the big thing, right? Everybody would talk about. Would God punish someone forever because they stole a piece of bubble gum? Well, the question is, is it a sin? The guilt of sin is infinite. Why? Because it's measured not by what you did, but by who you offended. Who did you offend? The God of this world, the God of the universe, the God of all creation, the God who told us and put in our hearts right from wrong. You sinned against God. Now, if God has an eternal righteousness and you sin against that, then your payment will be eternal. And you're also eternal, by the way. Once you're created, you're eternal. Whether a person goes to hell or heaven, they have an eternal spirit and they will get a resurrected eternal body. And so how is God supposed to just let the unbeliever off the hook? Oh, you've given a thousand years. Now where do they go? They have an eternal body and soul. And they can never fully pay back what they owe to God for one sin because he's an eternal, perfect, righteous being. And so that is why the smallest sin will get eternity in hell without Christ. Here's J.C. Ryle, 1800s, Anglican pastor, very reformed though. He said, beware of new and strange doctrines about hell. Because it was popular in the 1800s and starting to really take off. And he said, the eternity of punishment. These are new and strange doctrines. Beware of manufacturing a God of your own. A God who is all mercy but not just. A God who is all love but not holy. A God who has a heaven for everybody but a hell for no one. A God who can allow good and bad to, to be side by side in time but will make no distinction between good and bad broad in eternity. That should be good and bad, I think, in eternity. Such a God is an idol of your own. That's the real problem with, with all of this that we've been looking at lately. It's an idol. As truly an idol as any snake or crocodile in an Egyptian temple. The hands of your own fancy and sentimentality, that's a key word, sentimentality, have made him. He's not the God of the Bible, and beside the God of the Bible, there is no God at all. The problem is we don't like what the Bible says about God. So we create our own conception of God. Even, even Christians, even true believers can do this because they don't know the Bible, and they struggle to comprehend things, and they haven't studied it enough. Or maybe they've been in a place where they haven't been taught well. And they struggle with this. How could evil exist in the world? How could God send people to hell? And if you don't know the Bible, you're going to tend to make up things for yourself. And you tend to make up a God that you would like, that's all loving, that never punishes. The problem is you really wouldn't like that God. 
Because then sin would go unpunished. And how could God even redeem the whole creation? How could we trust in God? How would he be righteous if he didn't punish the wicked? We love the fact that judges punish the wicked in our county, in our state, and hopefully in our federal government as well. But we suddenly don't like the idea that God would do that for eternity. It has to be both. If there's punishment for the wicked, there will also, of course, be eternal life for believers. Attacks on the Bible and creation. This is also another way that unbelievers will try to undermine the faith. They will try to undermine Christianity. They don't necessarily go to the Bible first. They typically will just talk about the Christian view of creation. But ultimately, you're going to get to the Bible because that's where it's that's where it's taught to us, the view of the right view of creation. Have you ever noticed, by the way, that anytime the news or someone comes out and says something about Christianity, they don't really talk about the Bible. It's your beliefs. Some Christians believe, this church believes, this this person says. They really don't go after the Bible unless they're an adamant atheist or some kind of scholar who's who's really trying to undermine scripture. They typically will just Pick a doctrine they don't like and say, this is what certain Christians believe. And then they'll mock that or make fun of it. But they often won't go to the scripture. Because what happens when you go to the Bible? God's word is powerful. God's word convicts. And they would rather stay away from that and just talk over here like we all have different philosophical views. But not go to scripture, which is a bit scary for the unbeliever. I like some of these cartoons that they put out. Much of the graphics, cartoons and such are coming from Answers in Genesis. Here's the preacher getting up on Sunday morning in some churches. This morning I'll be reading from the creation story from the book of Genesis. And then refute it with the latest findings from secular science. And then back it up by quoting theologians that don't believe the Bible anyway. And sarcastically they'll say, you probably never hear a preacher say this is what he's going to do. But, and that is true. A lot of churches will read scripture and then turn around and say something in their sermon that goes against scripture. There's how to draw evolution's missing links. Here's somebody saying, literally, 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 sure, it's literal. And the person says, literally, not metaphorically, figuratively, or poetically, literally. God created the universe on six literal days, literally. And then Exodus 20:11, which we'll look at. So we're going to talk about evolution. We're going to talk about age of the earth. Anytime people come and attack the Bible's view of creation. How do, we, how do we think about that? What verses could we do? Remember, in apologetics, or at least the way we're, we're teaching it here, it's called presuppositional apologetics. You are not setting the Bible aside, but you are defending the faith from the standpoint of scriptures, and you're asking them questions to undermine their view. You're, you're causing them to think. It's really called the Socratic method after Socrates, but he did it. That's all he did was ask questions, and he made people mad, and they killed him for it. But Jesus asked plenty of questions too. It's just that he taught a lot too. Here's what to believe. Here, here. He didn't just ask questions. He taught and asked questions and made people think. And it is a great way to make people think. Ask a question. Too many times we, we just sit and listen and listen and listen. And we don't ask the right questions so that the person is thinking and saying something that is, is helpful and it makes them consider their own worldview. So there's different types of issues when it comes to creation that you're going to hear. And you need to be prepared, I think, as best you can to answer these. There's the atheistic evolutionists. Now, the Big Bang started the universe and life evolved from nothing. There is no God, in other words. We talked about how to answer atheism. But a lot of the evolutionist views can be lumped into one category. Sometimes we think apologetics, and I've said this before, but for anybody that's joined us, we think apologetics is just to atheists. And we get so focused on that, which that, that is a big part of it. But we get so focused on that that we can't answer the person who lives next to us who says they're a Christian but denies everything in Scripture. So that's why we're spending some time on these doctrines because these are more commonly what you're going to hear. You're not likely to hear. There's only a small percentage of Americans who claim to be atheists. But practically, many of them are atheists because they reject the truth of Scripture. They reject the God of the Bible. But to come out and say it, the more scientific ones, the militant ones, the ones that have been writing books and having videos and DVDs made and documentaries over the last couple of decades, those are rare. They're out there on the internet world if you spend all your time on the internet. But I don't really recommend internet apologetics. That's a huge hole that once you dive into, 
Yeah, you'll never come out. It's, it's probably the reason that most Christian blogs cut off comments a few years ago because it turned into such long, drawn-out arguments. So there are a lot of atheists, but not as many as we sometimes want to believe. There's a lot of practical atheists in the fact that they're unbelievers, though. And we need to be able to answer more than just the atheist evolutionists. There's also theistic evolution. These are people who say they believe in the God of the Bible and that he used evolution to bring about all life on earth. So they look at science and say, here's what the science says on evolution. And I'll come to the word science in a minute. And then they say, well, here, I'm a believer and I can put those two things together. Then intelligent design, which really doesn't hold to a specific view, but you might hear this term, so I wanted to mention it. The theory that the universe and living things were designed and created by the purposeful action of an intelligent agent. So it does reject evolution. That's the good of intelligent design. The weakness of it, I mentioned this before, if you try to use this in apologetics, it's an evidential apologetic, and you're just going to stack up all your scientific things you found, and he's going to stack up all his scientific things he found, and it's like, who can do more internet research the fastest? Uh, Or who can buy the stack of books that help you do this? It doesn't really convince them. It might make them think. It's really helpful for believers. I mean, if I taught a class on Genesis, I would use a lot of the things that intelligent design has, has showed us and reminded us and taught us from science. And it doesn't contradict the Bible, but it's not enough in and of itself to just prove there is a God. That's not what the Bible does, does it? Does the Bible spend 66 books just trying to prove there's a God? No, what's the first verse? In the beginning, God created. There you go. Everyone knows there is a God, so why would God waste time doing that? The whole Bible is about how to be saved and have a relationship eternally and a right relationship with that God. There's also two views on the age of the earth. So these are often Christians who believe in Christ. They, they follow the Bible, but they disagree over the first couple of chapters. And that is important. The first two chapters can't be set aside. Genesis 1 through 12, the young earth creationist would say is literal. This is what we teach here, a literal historical account. We can't determine the exact age of the earth, but the genealogies don't give us a lot of leeway. You might, you know, Wayne Grudem talks about stretching it out to, to 10,000 years. Maybe if there's a few gaps in the genealogies. If not, you're looking at more like 6,000 years old. Old earth creationists look to the age of the earth from science, 4.5 billion years. Although this number does change, and I think it may have changed recently. They, they've have, they keep having to adjust it around. May deny historical Adam and the worldwide flood. This is a, an interesting graphic. I think we need to stop and consider when we're doing apologetics. Sometimes we go after these balloons in the air. Racism, homosexual behavior, abortion, family breakup, pornography. And we need, we need to speak about these things in the church and in sermons when they come up. But look at where the humanistic viewpoint is firing. They've built this whole view on evolution. And they're not firing at the balloons that we have. They're, they're firing at the creation account. And the reason is, if you can undermine that... And you can build your own belief system upon a man-made system. Evolution is a man-made system. And if you can build your belief on that, then you can pretty much do whatever. In fact, Darwin talked about survival of the fittest. And survival of the fittest is, is what Hitler tried to accomplish. That doesn't mean every evolutionist ends up like Hitler. But if you take it to its ultimate conclusion, then every animal, including human beings, are out to gain as much as they can and the survival of the fittest will continue on. That's why all the sci-fi books and movies and things are always talking about that. The ultimate human, the ultimate android, and so on. Pretty much all sci-fi is about that these days. They're firing at creation, and we're sometimes in Christianity just taking a nap on top of the castle there. Nobody cares. Or firing off in the wrong direction. And then one guy's really celebrating because he popped one little balloon. We need to be looking at the presuppositions, the presuppositions of uh, an unbeliever who accepts this view of of humanistic and evolutionary foundations. That's what we need to ask them. That's why apologetics ultimately comes back to your presuppositions. What is the assumptions you bring into this discussion? And usually the assumption is that we evolved and we evolved from animals. And 
based on that assumption, people argue certain things. Now, the real problem that's come up recently in evolution, this is a side point, is the, the homosexual stuff and the transgender, bisexual, it doesn't fit with evolution. Now, they will say, well, you can see animals doing such things. The problem is that's not survival of the fittest because there is no progeny from a homosexual relationship. And then in bisexual, is it a choice? Which is often what they said it wasn't. But the problem is bi is back and forth, right? So all kinds of issues. These are questions you can ask, okay? So you might ask the homosexual who says they believe in evolution. How does your belief and homosexuality bring about the evolutionary process that you just said you believed? And you probably will not get an answer. Well, you will get an answer, but it won't be very joyful. So these are two worldviews. They, they're, really, they're not compatible. They're not compatible. Evolution and the Bible are not compatible. Now, I know that the believers can be confused on this. I had about two weeks as, an, as a believing evolutionist before I was corrected biblically. Praise the Lord. But it was because I thought I was a Christian before I was saved, and I accepted evolution and was even trained in a degree in biology. And I remember my evolution professor in college saying, well, I'm a Christian and I believe in evolution. So it's okay, students who come from these small towns and believe in, in God, you can do both. He was a, a Catholic and a nice man, a very good science teacher when it came to biology. But unfortunately, that's what stuck with me. And then I got saved and thought it was fine. And then two weeks later, a very close friend convinced me from the scripture to the truth. So not compatible the universe exploded into existence out of nothing. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created. That, that is not, that, that can't go together. Mutually exclusive. Life evolved from a pool of chemicals by natural processes. God created all life, not through chemicals. Yes, we're made up of chemicals. They are in our bodies for a purpose, but that's not how we started out. Different life forms evolved from a common ancestor over millions of years. Is not compatible with God created all life after its kind. By the way, evolutionists say they don't have faith, they don't have a religion, but it really is a religion. Think about it. Atheism in general, the belief that there was nothing and nothing happened to nothing and then nothing magically exploded for no reason, created everything, and then a bunch of everything magically rearranged itself for no reason whatsoever into self-replicating bits, which then turned into dinosaurs. Makes perfect sense. I mean, you just really stop and think about that. And they mock the resurrection and Christ. But it does make sense if you're talking about the God who can do all things. If you take God out of the picture, nothing is possible. Nothing at all. So they have faith. They believe that life comes from non-life. That is a belief. You cannot observe that. You cannot see that. You cannot measure that. They just believe it happened. Intelligence comes from unintelligence. Morality comes from non-morality. How did right and wrong come into existence? Now, they will try to argue that that's because it best benefits society and the continuation of the fittest, and therefore we introduce morality. It doesn't work, though, when you get, get into it in more detail. So that's a remarkable faith, isn't it? That things come from nothing. That is amazing faith. Is Darwinian evolution science? Evolution. This is a basic definition. The way in which living things change and develop over millions of years. That's a real basic one. You can probably find more in-depth explanations. But that's basically it. Change over time. Change over time. Well, let's talk about science. There's two definitions you can use for science. Number one, a branch of knowledge or study dealing with a body of facts or truths systematically arranged and showing the operation of general laws. So you go out there... And you just study things and you arrange it and then you teach it. And this is just how the world works. The sun goes around, you know, the earth, the earth moves around the sun. Sorry, I'm back into, I'm going to talk about Galileo if I have time today. The earth moves, the moon goes around the earth, so on. These are just things you teach the kids, the weather patterns, stuff like that. Secondly, this is observational science. Systematic knowledge of the physical and material world gained through observation and experimentation. So we typically think of scientific experiments. We can, we can make a hypothesis, do the experiment, come up with a theory, keep doing it enough to, to get pretty much close. We never can have absolute certainty like God does, of course, but we can, 
we can get down to, we know if, we, if I drop this, it's going to fall down. Okay? There might be some other factors that would hold it up, but we know that's going to happen. We can, we can observe it over and over and over. Can you observe the evolutionary process? Have you? Was anyone around at creation to, to observe so-called evolution? No. It doesn't even fit the definition of a science. What is faith? Faith is great trust or confidence in something or someone. So believers have faith in the Lord and have faith in God. They believe his word. The atheist evolutionist has faith in humanity to write down what they think is correct and then they believe that. So, so what is the ultimate source of truth for the person who denies God? Well, they're looking to themselves. They're looking to themselves. They're looking to mankind. Where did you learn about evolution? From a professor. Where did he learn about it? From a professor. From a textbook. Who wrote the textbook? Man. You can only go back so far. And now you're just going to go back to Darwin. And a few people who had some strange ideas like him before that. So Christians don't deny that things change over time. It's not millions of years, but we do see changes within a species, for example. We see wolf, coyote, dingo, collie, all being of the same kind. The Bible calls these kinds, and people mock that. But it's no different than coming up with the word species. Somebody had to come up with that idea. It was, the word species was out there, and they had to apply it to the animal world. And now we study that in biology. But there's no new information coming into these animals. There, there's nothing new. There's a large genetic pool within each one, and that gets expressed variously over generations, but not millions and billions of years. It's the same as with kids. I have 10 kids. They all look different, many different colors of eyes. Even the, the percentage stats that say I'm not supposed to have more than is it two kids with blue eyes and, and one with green. That doesn't even work out in my own family. Uh, so there's very little that we actually sometimes know about genetics, but that's a different subject. So how, what do you ask the atheistic evolutionists? How does the concept of right and wrong evolve? And these are going to go back to some of the basic questions that we ask about the existence of God. This is now applied to evolution. How does the concept of right and wrong evolve? It doesn't. It doesn't evolve. It has to be introduced by mankind, they would say, for the benefit of the civilization, but someone could just reject this and have all the power and control to take over someone else. How do universal laws and the laws of logic evolve? This is a great question. Now, it's a little bit more intellectual, but think about it. How, how does the law of gravity evolve? Well, that's not a living creature. Well, it is part of the Big Bang. Everything is supposed to be part of the Big Bang. And so how does that even come into existence? Well, that was there before the Big Bang. Okay, now, now we're going back before the Big Bang. And they, they don't want to go all the way back to God. So that's a good question, a good conversation starter. How can the evolutionists assume that the future will reflect the past in a mindless world begun with a Big Bang? If, if everything just suddenly exploded into existence and there is no God, how do you know that today or tomorrow everything won't just explode again? Or a million times. Why is it you think that it explodes once and never again? How can you trust, in other words, that you can get up tomorrow, start your car, go to work, come home? Because you know things will continue on a certain way because there's something that upholds the world or someone. This is a transcendental argument. And that's a good way to get into. You're assuming a Christian God. You're assuming the God of the Bible when you go about your everyday, when you argue the laws of logic, when you do science, you know if you do X, Y, Z, you can study that it's going to happen that way each time. I, I know this would make some people sad, but we couldn't even do algebra without the universal laws of logic. Does that make anybody sad? You're assuming, these mathematicians who are atheists, you're assuming that it's going to work out, the problem is going to work out the same every time, right? How do we know that? How can that be? How can a problem work out the same every single time? And here's the question I referred to earlier. Do you think homosexuality is genetic? Yet your evolutionary theory says the strongest survive. That's natural selection to pass on their traits. How does a homosexual pass on his traits if he's not, li likely, not likely to reproduce? Unless he 
finds a, a person of the opposite sex. Is the real reason you don't believe in evolution based on what man knows? Scientists who say Darwin was wrong versus what God knows, right? The Bible. So what, what do we believe? Only one of these will never fail. Only the Bible will never fail. There are some people who say, well, Darwin was wrong, but then they go to scientists to prove it. And this is evidential apologetics. Oh, you believe in evolution? Well, let me show you the eye. And the eye is awesome. If I was teaching believers and just trying to build up the faithful, we could look at the eye. Or that woodpecker who has the tongue that, that goes around his brain multiple times. And then when he pecks a hole into the tree, his tongue goes out and down the trunk. I mean, that's just amazing. Stuff like that can't evolve. It doesn't even make sense. It doesn't make sense. But then we're just picking scientists. It's like picking your favorite preacher to determine your doctrine. Well, we need to go to the Bible first. And then we might find a preacher that helps us understand that. But we still have to examine the Bible. Some will say, well, why are we even arguing about this? Shouldn't we just focus on telling people about the gospel? This is one of the earliest things I heard as a Christian. It's not something we should even focus on with the unbeliever. It's not, a, it's not an issue we should bring up. And I would agree, if they don't bring it up, then don't bring it up. But if they do bring it up, which a lot of people do these days. Why? Because everyone is taught this in school, in high schools, in colleges, everyone. Even Christian colleges teach this to some extent. And so we can't always get around that. But creation is important. Where do we get the idea of Adam? Jesus is called the last Adam, the second Adam. How can you have a second Adam if you don't have a first Adam? And where do we get the, the whole teaching on Adam? The theology of mankind. Anthropology. What about the reason for the gospel? Why are people sinners? Well, that's connected to Adam, isn't it? Where does that come from? How does sin come into the world? Where does it come from? Who first sinned? Well, that's connected back to creation, right? And the reason Jesus came was because mankind is sinful. Marriage, where does that come from? Well, that goes back to creation, Genesis 2. John 3.16. You can't even do John 3.16 without connecting it back to creation. And sin, what, what is sin? Where did that first come into the world? I mean, the creation really is in the Bible in the beginning for a reason, because everything after that builds on it. The Bible, you read it forward. You know that? You don't read it backwards. You read it forward. You should read your Bible all the way through. Start in the beginning and read through. It's not the only way to read the Bible, but it is in order for a reason. Look at how many times just the word creation comes up in the English NASB 95 in the New Testament. Okay, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. You know what Jesus just talked about there? He's saying, go back to your Bibles, Genesis 1 and 2, from the beginning. That's pretty important. That's important. He's talking about marriage. He's talking about divorce. These are important things that we need to know and study. Matthew 16, 15. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. What is all creation? Who, who is that? That's everyone. That's the whole world. For since the creation, the world of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature. Not since the Big Bang, since the creation of the world. And you can just see all the way through the epistles and into Revelation. There will even be a judgment on all creation. And all creation will be restored, Paul said in Romans 8. Pretty important in the New Testament. Many prominent Christian scholars, though, do deny the creation in Genesis 1 and 2, and even the fall in Genesis 3. These are prominent scholars. These are commentary writers. Some have been fired from their conservative seminaries, and others are still in seminaries. They're all pretty much still writing books if they're alive. So here's Bruce Waltke. This guy writes some pretty good commentaries. I've used them. But here's his view on creation. If the data is overwhelmingly in favor of evolution... To deny that reality will make us a cult. Some odd group that is not really interacting with the world. So his, this is the idea of setting creation aside so we can have the world accept what we say. And he said that makes us sound like a cult because in his mind, there's overwhelming evidence. Here's a Trimper Longman also written a lot of commentaries. He says, I just personally don't think Genesis 1 and 2 prohibits the idea that there is an evolutionary process. So what he wants to do is fit that in. And uh, yeah, he says he's conservative, but 
I'm not buying it, especially these days. Peter Enns, he's very forthcoming. He lost his position at Westminster Seminary for his views. He says, And whatever way forward is chosen, we must be clear on one thing. We have all left Paul's Adam. We are all creating Adam, as it were, in an effort to reconcile Scripture and the modern understanding of human origins. So the only reason that Paul came up with this idea of a second Adam is because he had to create that in his own mind to, to come up with some view of how the world began, how mankind came into existence. In other words, he's saying the Bible's not true. Here's Tim Keller. He used to be a pastor in New York City. There's no logical reason, he says, to preclude that God could have used evolution to predispose people to believe in the gospel so that people would be able to consider true belief when they hear the gospel preached. So he's saying there's no reason to throw out evolution. There's no reason to throw out evolution in our belief system. God could use it. In other words, people are saying here that Adam and Eve were not real people since humans evolved into existence, and this does not hurt the Christian faith to deny a historical Adam. Well, it does. It does. Again, but from the beginning of creation, Jesus said, God made them male and female. He wasn't using creation just so people could understand. He was using this phrase because he's quoting from Genesis. He's quoting from God's account to us of how he created. Now, atheists will deny scripture, but if you say you're a Christian, this, this locks you in right here because these are the words of Jesus. Romans 5.12 We'll be looking at this in coming sermons. Therefore, just as though through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is how sin came into the world. This is why we're born with a sin nature. It really affects the gospel. How do you evangelize somebody who doesn't even believe they have a sin nature or ever sinned? Well, they know they do, whether they say it or not. And the Bible confirms that over and over. So you can go into the conversation knowing for a fact that that's the case. 1 Corinthians 15, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. You see this parallel here? Take off the first half. What happens? The parallel is broken. All people in Adam will die, but those in Christ, all that are in Christ will be made alive forever and ever, eternal life. If you take one away, the logic doesn't work here. The argument doesn't work. Paul's just making up things that don't make sense. That makes sense to us because we understand that there was an Adam. Acts 17, 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. This is Paul's evangelistic message. He is speaking to philosophers in Athens. We would call these atheists today. Even though they say they believed in the Greek gods, by the time of the first century, they really didn't. They believed in man's reasoning, philosophy. And Paul says to them, God made from one man every nation of mankind. God did it. God created. God is the one that holds us responsible for our sin. Luke 3.23. Jesus' genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. Wow. If we take out Adam, we just undermine the genealogy of Jesus. It's not like all those other people are real and Adam's a made-up concept. Adam's name is in the list, just like all the other people in the list. This is pretty serious if we take out Adam. Here's some ways in which people try and fit millions and billions of years into the creation account. So now we're talking more about the age of the earth here. There's room for gaps. So the gap theory, the gap theory fits millions of years. There's room for gaps, they say, in Genesis 1 and 2. So God created the earth, then let things evolve. Then wiped these pre-Adamic humans out and remade the rest of creation, starting in Genesis 1 and 2 and making Adam and Eve. And you have to really work to get that in there. It's not found in the scripture, so you've got to insert it from man's opinion. Then there's the day-age theory. Each day in Genesis 1 is really equal to millions or billions of years, which allows for an earth that is 4.5 billion years old. That doesn't work, right? If I say, come to my house in two days, and then you come knock on my door and I say, I really meant thousands of years. What are you guys doing here? I mean, it doesn't work with communication. God would be tricking us with his communication in the Bible. A day means a day, and I'll show you that. It'll have to be next week. But every single time the Hebrew word for day is used with a number, it means a literal 24-hour day. Every time. The literary framework issue is the other view. It says Genesis 1 is just Hebrew poetry. So here they're not trying to fit anything in. They're just saying it's really all poetic. It's metaphorical. 
It does not describe historical account. Why are we looking to the Bible for that? They say it's just a summary of the billions and billions of years of creation. So instead of telling us billions of years, which the people couldn't accept in ancient culture, God just said days to be poetic. Answers in Genesis does this study and it runs continuously. And they go to a Christian school, a seminary. It's, you're going to find out this very broad range of what we call Christian, but many liberal Christian schools. And they go to the religion department, all the professors, and they say, old earth or young earth or neither. 78% of the religion department says, the department says the earth is old, very old, millions, billions of years. Then they go over to the science department of those same Christian schools and ask the same question. Only 35% roughly say it's an old earth, with 57 saying that it is a young earth. So here's the thing. Why would the scientists who are supposed to study all this have a different view than the religion department? And why is the religion department so adamant about proposing an old earth when even the science department right across in the next building doesn't do that? Could it be that people are trying to be accepted by academia, by the world, in Christianity, and that's why they accept it? I'm not saying everyone does that, but I think that might be a possibility with this high percentage here. Bible supports a young earth. I'm going to just leave you with this. Go home. Think about Genesis 20.11. We're going to go through it the first thing next week. Think about Genesis 20.11. And if, if six days doesn't mean six 24-hour days, we have some real problems with what Moses said, with the Sabbath, with the whole Bible. This is a major problem in, Gen- in Exodus 20.11. It is really the proof text. Genesis 1 and 2 is good enough, but Moses confirms it with a statement here. So we're over time. Let me close this for today. Lord, I thank you that you have been so clear in Scripture that with faith we are to trust in you and all things that you've given us. If we know that this is the Bible, the Word of God, and we do, then we must trust in that. And we may have questions, we may have doubts at times, but we go back to your Word to answer those. And so we thank you for making everything so clear, Lord, and helping us to continue our studies and abilities to grow in what we believe and how we can talk to unbelievers. Continue to build us up in that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.